Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And this is Adam. We are the Queer Arabs. We're and we have an amazing guest with us today. Yeah, talk- Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Tarek. Um, it's Jobson. I'm queer and feminist. I'm, I'm I'm doing my PhD in anthropology here in the U.S. and I've been working and involved with LGBTIQ and feminist groups in Egypt for the last ten years or something. I only moved here recently, and I'm excited to be here. And you've been going back and forth between Egypt and the U.S. pretty regularly. Yes, yes. I've been I've been trying to go back and forth as much as I can to work there, to work here, and like try to connect the two worlds. Thank you to Adam for introducing us to Tarek. Like, yeah, Tarek and I have known each other. We've been, we've been friends for many, many years and during our time in Egypt. And yeah, I guess my first question, like, and this is something I feel like I haven't actually asked you, uh, despite uh, like us knowing each other. What was the first time that you like became inspired to do like queer related work? And I know that you do so many different types of work, like from like different kinds of activism to like capacity building to community building to like your research, of course. But I'm curious, like, when the start of that was for you. Okay, thank you for your question. I feel like there are three defining moments for me that witnessed, like, the progress of this feeling or this urge. The first one was in the early 2007, 2008. It was just a personal interest. My coming out experiences were violent. They entailed violence and violation against me. And they were very traumatizing experiences. And I remember very well that I really didn't want younger generations to go through the same thing that I went through. So I always had this kind of feeling and inclination that I want to be part of a community. I We are being marginalized. We're being persecuted. We need to be standing with each other. So this happened. And then I think in 2009, and this sounds very like everything that Mr. Joseph Massad hates, but <laughs> it, it's true. It happened. When Milk came out, the movie, I was so inspired and motivated by it. <laughs> Like, like we don't talk about Joseph Masada on this podcast. <laughs> we could do like a an anti an anti <laughs> Can we do a whole episode where we just critique Joseph Masad? <laughs> yeah. But I mean like I'm down. No, but it's also a question of knowledge production. It's like, okay, milk came out. I didn't have any other outlets in Egypt. I was inspired, I was motivated, it affected me for years. I was this kind of one-man show kind of thing. And it's, you know, you you gotta come out and save people and stuff. Of course, I dropped this afterwards. But I mean, like, while I was influenced by the movie, it started happening that me and my friends will be, queer friends, will be kicked out from pubs and bars and cafes and restaurants. And I was living alone back then. And I was like, how about we hang out in my house? How about we make my house the safest space for us? Let's do movie nights. Let's organize. Let's do this. Let's do that. But then whenever I would have conversations with queer folks about organizing, they would be like, why do you want to do this? We're safe. We do parties. We have sex. This was like the pre-2011 Egypt. Mm-hmm. I think the third defining moment for me was toward the end of 2010 when I participated in a training and I was in one place with Arab and Middle Eastern human rights activist and i felt like this was the right moment for me to quit journalism and media and move to structural system like st- structurally organized political uh, queer and feminist activists when you say structurally like organized can you elaborate on what yeah. that shift was might, like yes i might have not used the right term for this but i mm-hmm. what i wanted to say is that pre yeah. 2011, I was more interested in personal initiatives and doing things on a personal capacity. Mm-hmm. Starting gotcha. from 2010, yeah. I wanted to be part of a collective. I wanted to be part of a group of people, no matter what the frame is, who are interested in doing this on a long term, this kind of sustainable activism, this kind of long term activism. It is more than just offering you a space. You are trying to make a change. You are trying to organize collectively. So I yeah. hope this. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm interested in what like getting involved in more organized activism looked like for you. But I also want to mention that I mean, for a lot of people we've been talking to, it really does start on a personal and interpersonal level of let yeah. me help my friends, let me make spaces for us. And while there's definitely a lot to expanding beyond that i think it's important to remember where that starts from and like that's where some like very genuine deeply rooted activism begins yeah you're completely right one thing that i always say is that one thing that i always say is that for me for me feminism and queerness okay at least for feminism it's like i've always had that feeling i've always had this intention i've always had this kind of urge since i was younger like i remember when i was in a high school kid and 
my school happened to have boys and girls so we would meet in the library in the break and be like we need to work on patriarchy we need to do something your brother shouldn't be treating you this way <laughs> i'm just imagining you at the age of like 15 talking about the patriarchy to your classmates oh that's great <laughs> so, i i love this thank you of course back then i wouldn't say the word patriarchy but i was like no i i think i was 16 or 17 and i would like be meeting with the girls in the library during the breaks and would be like let's start a women's organization and i remember that yahoo was still oh new God. so i made an email and it was called venus association for women's rights <laughs> you are dating yourself <laughs> this is yes, so beautiful i love I that is everything for me has always been personal in that sense like i'm not a kind of like i feel like i'm not a kind of person who can work in a place that he's detached from i don't do this i can't it's just i'm mm -hmm. such a drama queen it just doesn't work this way either i'm 100 percent invested or i'm not so yeah you're completely right let's appreciate and acknowledge that organizing and mobilization they always start as personal project and personal doesn't mean that it's all about you it means that you care about your friends you care about your community you are trying to do something i guess to go off of that i i have like two questions related to nadia's question one of them is like tell us more about like what this you touched on this a little bit by mentioning what was happening at the pubs and the bars but tell us more about the different things that were happening in the country that made you feel the need to mobilize specifically with lgbt communities um and like also women obviously because you mentioned feminism as like a leading cause but then also what your mobilization and what your like structured efforts looked like like what that was okay i think something that people somehow tend to forget when it comes to egypt is that people tend to think that public mobilization or like you know social and political mobilization has started after the revolution, which of course is not true. I feel that at least 2010, the, the 2010 has been, was a very crucial year politically in Egypt because it was the year when Baradai became a reality, when there was I don't remember the name, but I mean like 2010 was a, was a huge thing. With the parliamentary elections, it was nine years after Queen Boat, the crackdowns on queer people had stopped like in like that was the intensity that they used to be uh, like this is stopped like around 2007 like the the last crackdown that included more than one person in egypt more than a queer person in egypt ended around 2007 like there was a case in tahrir square amnesty wrote about it so the, 2010 it was the year when the mubarak regime wants to do changes so it's like if they arrest an activist they would most likely detain him or her for like two days or something and then with the pressure international media international organizations they would be released in two days so it's like it was a moment that that said that something can happen it was a moment when eipr was working the egyptian initiative for personal rights and it was a moment when harass map became a reality so i think starting from okay here's something i feel like the early 2000s in egypt like at least the first 10 years the first decade they've been very important it started with the second intifada and then the war on iraq and the protests against the war on iraq in tahrir square and in, in, in cairo and then the emergence of kifaya enough and then you know the multiple political initiatives and groups emerging back then and then the presidential elections in 2005 the fire that happened to um the cultural center in Beni's wave and how many intellectuals and artists died people were protesting protesting was part of everyday life in egypt back then so i feel i feel back then at least towards 2010 that i we were relatively safe enough to start mobilizing or at least be kind of visible because also into but by 2010 the dynamics the urban dynamics of downtown cairo have changed with all the issues with all of course the problems of progressive circles in egypt but downtown cairo back then was still somehow a bubble it was really more progressive lots of arts lots of protests lots of progressive peoples and it's like if someone is homophobic you can shame him maybe he wouldn't change but at least maybe one of or two of your friends will take a stand will will stand in, in solidarity with you so it's like there was something there was something queer people were all around the place like you would find oh my god 2010 in egypt there was this bar i cannot say the name but i swear to god i swear to god if you would go on a thursday night to this bar starting from 
once you leave the elevator and the place was huge and it had indoors and outdoors on a Thursday night. I think I know queers, what you're talking about. Queers all over the place, all over the place. You leave the bar, you go like walk around to a cafe or something. Queers are everywhere, everywhere. So it was, and I was like, okay, if we are a lot in, in numbers, then let's do something. Let's do something. So yeah, that's for the question, the first question. For the second question, I think not to over theorize that I meant like the, the kind of work that NGOs do. So basically you give trainings, you provide support, uh, you do workshops, uh, you advocate, uh, you document violations, you do local advocacy, you do regional advocacy, you do international advocacy, you reach out to queer people, you train them, uh, you work with them, you produce knowledge with them. So this is what I mean by like. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then, um, and then, can you tell us a little bit about your um, academic interests and research and how that kind of intersected with this activism work you were also doing? I think I might like. I'm not sure if I'm going too far by this or not, but I feel like when I look at what I studied for my undergrad, what I did for my master's and my PhD, I feel like because I studied for my undergrad journalism and then for my master's, I did gender and women's studies and now I'm doing anthropology. I feel like if I put the three together, they say something about I've always been interested in telling stories and telling mm -hmm. stories that mean something to me and mean something to the people that I care about. So I thought that journalism would be the medium, but then I hated it and I hate how corrupt it was. But then, and then by the time I moved to feminist and, and queer activism, I felt that I needed to be grounded and trained in feminist theories and, and feminist scholarship and feminist research. And then I felt after like, and I've only, and since I, when I started my master's, I became interested in the question of masculinities because it was under theorized and understudied in Egypt and also how it shapes questions of sectarian, sectarianism and other questions. And now I feel like, okay, so now I'm moving like to a different level where I'm doing anthropology backed with my feminist methodologies and approach. So now I'm looking at questions of violence, state violence, militarization, citizenship, queerness, social movement and i'm sorry that i will go back in time again but one thing that i've heard before and i've witnessed it but i didn't know the logic uh, behind it before as much as i don't like progressive circles in egypt and leftist circles in egypt because i feel like they can be problematic but the leftist women leftist feminist women in egypt have done a lot for the queer community like if you look at pre-2011 egypt and look at the social gatherings and parties of New Year's Eve or like Valentine's or something, you would find that queers were provided some sort of a quota within those parties and they were protected and backed by those women. So you will find queer people visible in a leftist party just because of the effort and the, the, the and the work of and, and the solidarity of the leftist feminist women of the movement. I want to dig into like every piece of the puzzle you brought up um but i guess just starting at the beginning um in as much detail as you want to say uh what were your experiences in journalism that made you become like disillusioned with that field uh, okay thank you. so i was working for a national magazine and i i don't know whether i wasn't really interested in politics or because i knew their politics so from the very beginning i said you know what i'm not interested in politics i'm only interested in arts and culture here is what happened by 2010 i i started having the kind of feeling that it seemed that I loved something that was in my head and in my imagination, but in reality, it doesn't, it's not what I hoped it would be. I really love movies. I really love arts. I really love engaging with arts and writing about arts. But like, of course, like when it comes to mainstream arts and mainstream media in Egypt, it's like, it's very corrupt. It's very homophobic. It's very sexist. It's very pretentious. And like, I would be evaluated, like I had a f such a manipulative boss who was acting like a father for me, who would be like, always undermine me just because of the fact that I, if I tried to reach out to a celebrity, they wouldn't answer. So this meant I wasn't connected enough. And I was like, I'm not a fixer, I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. So this is like how, however, one of the things that I'm grateful for is that in, I think it was in 2008, and I think Tul Omri, the movie, All My Life, Meher Sabri's movie, had come out like a, in the same year or like a year before. Yes. I love Meher. Thank you. 
I love him too. I became obsessed. And back then, there were rumors about me in the newspaper that I'm gay, that I was gay. And trust me, when I go back and think about those moments, I don't know how I dealt with them. Like how I decided not to think about them and just to be, fuck you, whatever. So, um, I just typed into the chat, oh yes. my god, TT's gay, yes. scandal. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, so. So is this I podcast. Love, so is this podcast. That makes sense. That works well. <laughs> So I sent an email to Meher. I found his email by chance and I interviewed him or like I asked him a couple of questions and I wrote a review about the movie. And I feel like, and not because I did it, but like people can go back and, and trace this. It was one of the very first times when an Egyptian newspaper used the word Mithliya instead of Shawaz or like Mithliyin instead of Shawaz. Can you A, explain what that difference is, but also explain yeah. what Turamri is? Okay, so Tul Omri or All My Life is a movie that Meher, who is one of the main activists who worked on Queen Boat and Cairo 52, when the Egyptian state arrested a number of gay, like over like 1500 gay men from an Nile cruise. Um, so Meher did a movie as a tribute to the community, as a tribute to Queen Boat. And he did it here in the US after he moved here to the US and he seeked asylum, I think. Meher financed the, the movie from his own money because he didn't want the movie to be accused of adopting a foreign agenda. And this is why till now Meher is in debt because of the movie. And so, yeah, so when I say the difference between, okay, so the difference between Misliyun and Shawaz, Shawaz is like abnormal, Misliyun is like homosexuals. So it's like, if I get it right, so I feel like the word Shawaz is, comes with this negative connotations, but Misliyin is like, you know, this kind of professional neutral terminology. Yeah, and I think the literal word for Shawaz translates to perverse or pervert. Yes. And honestly, like, even people who are not trying to be derogatory will still use that word today. But it's already like changed so much from like 10 years, like the word Misliyin, which is just like a much more like descriptive term, it's just like same sex or homosexual is like i don't th i don't think i'd heard that word until five years ago like before that the only way people use commonly use the word gay in arabic was like the transition was perverse yeah i'm i'm correct me if i'm wrong but from my understanding wasn't like misleading like an intentionally created and promoted word by activists i i don't know i think thought it would know that better than me no i think i feel like this is something one of the things that people pushed for but I feel like it became like some sort of a common sense between newspapers that would want to be identified as progressive or progressive leaning that they would be more politically correct. Mm -hmm. But also after the revolution, the conversation became different. But I mean, like speaking of, for example, one of the, he's actually in New York, one of the famous Egyptian screenplay writers, Bilal Fadl, is in New York now, I think. I feel he like is, I yeah. I'm, I feel like around the same time, he wrote an article and somehow it, it disappeared from the web. Do you know what was the title of it? What was it? Misli la yaqulu misli. Someone like me doesn't say the word homosexual. And he was speaking about how he was chatting with a worker in like, you know, the printing room in a newspaper. And there was this famous writer who used the word homosexual instead of perverts. And Bilal was disgusted because, you know, what are you trying to neutralize? What are you trying to normalize? So around the same time, this happened in, in the newspaper that I was working for. But so this is that I feel that it would be important. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something positive about him because everything I know about him is that he's very uh, conservative. So I was I was surprised that you were going to yeah, say something different. Thing. And here's what I hate about it and what I don't like about progressive circles. They introduced him as a progressive person. They made him part of our circles and everyone tend to forget that he wrote this. Hmm. That he's homophobic, that he is this person. But yeah, so so this was about why I quit journalism or like how why I didn't feel like it, it wasn't part of my project anymore. Yeah, thanks for that. Kind of elaborating on what you said about like issues in progressive circles or um, leftist circles in Egypt. Did you feel like homophobia and probably also like misogyny, patriarchy, um, were those like prominent issues you experienced in those circles or if not, like what what else is it that's kind of turned you away from them? To be honest, like in the past, it was much worse. Like in the in the past, I tried to be involved. Like in the very past, before the revolution, I tried to get involved with the liberals. They were homophobic. In getting involved with the leftists, they were homophobic. But 
I think to put it in a different words, I have so much faith in feminist leftist women in Egypt. I have zero faith in a straight male leftists in Egypt. I always have faith in the women and the queer leftists. And this is why my relationship with the left, I feel like it's it's a complicated, it's a love-hate relationship. Like I always expect from them, but then they fail me and they disappoint me and they disappoint other community, my community. And then I feel like, oh, you're disgusting. But also like, of course, there are many male act progressive activists who are misogynist, sexist, who, are, who were involved in sexual violence and sexual harassment and rape. What I find very significantly different now is that people decided to speak up. Now the, the conversation is on the table. And this is what I feel like this is what the revolution gave to women and to queers, that at least now you can speak up, you can speak about this. Not that anything will change, but at least mm -hmm. it's not in your head. Mm -hmm. You're not feeling that you're imagining something. Going back to something you mentioned earlier about masculinity and sectarianism that you have you have researched the relationship between the two. Did you find that this is a relationship you that affects all circles, like including the so-called progressive left? That's, that's a very important question. I feel like my problem, or like not my problem, my take on the literature that is out there in relation to masculinities in Egypt is that it mainly focused on two themes. It either worked on masculinities within the context of sexual violence and feminist movement building or queer masculinities. And I feel like the masculinity is, is a much deeper project in Egypt. And like, you know, and it's it's multi-layered. Like, I mean, of course, it's not it's not a surprise, but I mean, like, look at misogyny among gay men in Egypt, the amount of misogyny among gay men in Egypt, the question of consent in sexual and emotional encounters among gay men. So even like, like, and this is not just in Egypt, but especially in Egypt, like the division between um, trans people and cis gay people. Uh, well, that too, we can talk about topping and bottoming mm -hmm. for sure. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the division between like cis gay men and how like they don't conceive of them, for the most part, obviously there are generalizations, uh, there are exceptions. But how cis gay men like don't identify as like in any way allied or relational to trans people and still will perpetuate transphobia themselves. Um, but I think that's also I, I mean, I feel like in the few circles that I'm in, I feel like that has been like progressively changing for the better in the last few years. Yeah. So, yeah, completely right. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, what, what you said is completely right. I feel like something is a changing, but also, I mean, I feel like sometimes and maybe i'm like hopelessly hopeful but sometimes i feel like that the actual promise is not among the circles that we already know i feel like egyptian revolution has changed something in the very structure of egyptian families and in the like and has impacted the differences and the classical distinction between the private sphere and the public sphere and i feel like the newer generations of queers and non-queers have for me like potentialities and possibilities for different extremes so for us to realize what is happening and, and what kind of a change has happened and how it, we would be able to see it i feel like we would need to wait for those new generations to come up like but i feel like the younger the younger the generations are the more ready they maybe are for such conversations about consent about queerness about feminism yeah i i totally agree that um not just in an egyptian context i think that masculinity gets under examined in basically any a lot of a lot of gender studies and explorations of gender it's just kind of treated as the norm when really there's so much to unpack there could you just kind of elaborate uh, a little more on your research um regarding the connection to sectarianism yes of course okay so for for my master thesis okay my when i started the project i was initially interested in looking at male hairdressers who work exclusively with women i was interested in the stereotypes, I was interested in what this reveals about masculinity in Egypt. But then through some connections, it happened that I did my field work in Shobra. So I was a, an assistant hairdresser working with a Coptic male hairdresser uh, who works exclusively with women. And um, I mean, the dynamics in our relationship were very interesting for me because it was interesting to see him enjoying me as a Muslim AUC student 
cleaning his shop mm-hmm. uh, and like collecting the hair from the ground, from the floor. And uh, so by time the project has transformed to become about this interplay between masculinities and sectarianism and hairdressing in Chobra in Egypt. So it was it, it was like very specific, but in the same time, because it was again a master thesis, not a PhD. But it was interesting to see the interplay of those different layers. Like for example, the night before he got married, his fiance, who was gonna be his wife, was upstairs with the other with her women friends, and they were like, you know, doing grooming and stuff. And I thought that he would want me to be out. However, I think he kind of sensed something, so he felt safe around me. So I was actually with him in the in the salon, and it's like he would send me to get like anti um, to like a painkiller for his fiance because she had a migraine. But it's like it was interesting to to hear them laughing up the stairs and me working with him down the stairs and him feeling safe around. Another interesting conversation was a conversation that I witnessed between him and um, his assistant, his main assistant, who was my friend, who was also Christian. And my friend had a ponytail. So um, they were speaking about the military and masculinity. And it was an interesting conversation that I remember it by heart. So my friend was like, yeah. So the, the boss was basically commenting on my friend have, having a ponytail. And he was like, you look like a faggot. And he was like, yeah, I, I mean it, yeah. I'm happy to look like a faggot because I don't want to go to the military. And he was like, you don't want to go to the, you, you don't want to ser- serve? And he was like, of course not. And he was like, I feel bad that I didn't serve. I feel bad that I was exempt from the mm. service. So for me, it was wow. an interesting conversation between two Coptic men who work as male hairdressers, who work exclusively with women about who is more manly than the other. and. What does this say about this about belonging to Egypt? What does this say about patriotism? I don't know, the word. but like you know about this kind of national national sentiments, and and serving in the, like the obligatory service and uh, for the military. I feel like I should have done more work on this issue, but it was like I was doing my masters while I was working for the feminist organization, so I was a part time. So it was yeah. it was a lot to handle, but I it was a very a very educational experience for me God. and yeah. I really and honest it felt so good for me in spite of everything that this man enjoyed at least for this three months how the power dynamics in our relationship were shifted yeah. because I felt that this is the least the least the least that I can do for for not like in terms of like you know um, not a savior thing just in terms of understanding our positionality like I was sure, always yeah. automatically thinking that just for being gay, I'm like at the bottom. But by the end of the day, I was doing my master's at AUC. I speak yeah. English. I was Muslim, raised as a Muslim. So to see the other side of the dynamics was definitely mind blowing. Yeah, it kind of yeah. goes back to what we were saying earlier about how everything starts personal and like understanding like societal structures really, it, it just comes down to not, not that it just comes down to personal dynamics, but there's so much within personal dynamics that um, can illuminate these larger ideas that you're trying to explore and break down. Yeah. True. Um, and, and like you building that sense of trust with him probably impacted him long term, maybe in ways that you don't, you aren't aware of. Yeah. And um, but I also remember something that, and I really loved the anthropology department at AUC. I remember one of my professors being like, power is not something that we can simply negate. If you think that if you try to act as if you belong to the same class of your interlocutors, that this is reflexivity, or like that this changes the power relations, you're delusion. They are expecting you, most likely people will be expecting you to act upon your class. Not acting upon your class doesn't, it, 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 it's not, pers- it's not, automatically perceived as you're being reflexive. No, or like you're being empathetic or considerate. It means that you're denying it and denying it is in itself an act of violence. So it was it was very complicated, like to acknowledge my positionality and in the same time, let him enjoy this game. And in the same time, learn from the process without thinking that just because I did this, that I became reflexive or that I, or that this is collaborative research or that yeah this is how people 
uh, question their privileges. No, for me, questioning questioning my privileges, questions, questioning my positionality, I feel like it's a homework that you keep doing until you die. Let's talk about what you're working on now um, in anthropology. Sure. My project is still in the process of being like configured, but for now, I'm looking or like I'm interested in looking at what happens to Egypt when the culture producers and activists whose contributions were shaping post-revolution Egypt are forced to leave because of the military coup of 2013. And what happens to those diasporic activists and cultural producers who live now in the North American diaspora? Actually, sorry, sorry to intervene. I think it would be really, I think, useful if you told us a little more about the kind of like violations against freedom of speech and human rights that have um, escalated, particularly post-2013, to then shed light on like why your project and your research is particularly relevant to, to queer Arabs and beyond. Sure. I'm not good with numbers, but what I can say is that I think I, I, what I can do is basically explain how the public sphere in Egypt has been shifting. But it's like the public sphere in Egypt since 2013, but mainly 2014, has been drastically changing. It was like a major backlash. It was a major setback, like different laws being imposed that police any form of protest, protesting, any form of mobilization. Uh, there is a, a case known as the foreign funding case or like case 173. Uh, by Egyptian state, like in this case, you will find at least a hundred NGO or like human rights and, and other civil society organizations in Egypt. So many people and activists and entrepreneurs are in this case. They are being accused of espionage or like, or like, you know, taking funds that they shouldn't have taken for like, you know, disrupting social stability or something. It's a very notorious, vague case. People are, some people, some activists are banned from travel, others, uh, the state froze their assets. Uh, others are imprisoned, for, um, maybe not for this case, but for other cases. Um, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Egyptian citizens, of intellectuals, of thinkers, of protesters who are in Egyptian prison or who took their own lives or who fled the country. So between 2013 and 2020, no one is safe. And even like all the meth that this, the middle class in Egypt have been feeding during the Mubarak era, that somehow they can be safe if they walk, you know, if they, you know, like work according to specific criteria, like, you know, I don't know how to say it in English, Adam, when we say يمشي جنب الحيط. Is it like يمشي جنب الحيط? Like walk in a straight line, don't break rules, listen to what the government exactly. tells you, and yeah. you won't be involved in like kidnappings and torture and detentions. Which is not true anymore women are being attacked and targeted by the state for being visible on on TikTok. queer community members were arrested for raising a rainbow flag in a concert someone was arrested for making a music video so it's like it's a weird it's a weird political it's a weird moment like yeah militarization has been a reality a materialized reality in egypt since the 19 1952 but now it's it's a different moment it's a moment when this project of militarization is neoliberal, is penetrating sources of capital and capital production. I don't know how to say, it, but it's like, yeah, like media and arts are expected to be operating as ideological tools of the state, but this is not the state of the 50s. This is not, you know, like the ideological uh, apparatuses of post-colonial state. It's, it's, and this, it's a moment of war on terrorism, so which is real. The war on terrorism is real, but how it's being exploited. It's a very depressing and frustrating moment. It's like the revolution and, and everything that you once had faith in has become the scar that would haunt you till I don't know when. And but then the specifically for queer communities, it has meant like like a, cr a cracking sure, down okay. on, I like, on dating apps, on hookups. On, yeah, so I, I, want, I want you to do this. I'm not going to do it. Okay. okay. <laughs> Let me start with the major crackdowns on queer people, just for the record. So the last major crackdown was in 2017, the Mashroo Alayla concert after people raised rainbow flags and a, a, a public concert in Cairo. Mm -hmm. At least 100 people, if not more, were arrested between the 23rd of September 2017 and between November. Um, this was a different escalation because at least two of the people that were arrested, they were not 
charged with adultery or like you know any of those charges they were charged with the same charge that the state would use against muslim brothers and islamists and like terrorist groups ahmed ali and sarah Gazi. this was the charge it was different so this was another level of escalation for me this like the mashra layla crackdown like post mashra layla crackdown for me is is the worst because it also on a personal level it costed me friends like to to hide your own friends from the state to among other activists of course i wasn't doing this on my own but i mean like to be part of collective of activists like hiding our own friends not knowing when again we will see them or helping them leave the country or losing a friend for suicide because of what happened so so this was like one of the major crackdowns then you had if you go back in 2014 december 2014 you have the bathhouse case when an egyptian tv anchor like you know was undercover and then made the police raid a public bathhouse. is that house. the mona Arai case yeah. yeah yes and you have the valentine's party in 2014 as well and you have another bathhouse case that is forgotten that happened in september 2013 and of course in addition to this between 2013 and 2020 you have at least 500 gay people or like and trans people being arrested from dating applications because the state is very much invested and interested in online entrapment so yeah i hope that this answers the question wait so now yeah. let's go back to your anthropology research yeah, and how yeah but, but like yeah. thank you for that context thank you that yeah. was um yeah. really thorough but yeah so for my project i'm interested in not only working with my queer community but i'm interested in knowing i feel like of course for framing the the my questions for anthropological research i have to complicate everything but if you ask me about why i'm doing this project i feel like because i feel that the state is now trying to control and manipulate its own narrative of the revolution and i'm interested in the different narratives of the different people who somehow couldn't make it to the different consolidation of citizenship in egypt that has taken place in the cc moment like who's being included and who's being excluded, it's something that is interesting for me. So I'm working with, I'm hopefully gonna be working with queers, Egyptian queers, Egyptian progressives, Egyptian Islamists, and Egyptian Christians who are in the North American diaspora in the US and Canada. And also, and my research is a multi-sided research between Egypt, the US and Canada. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I wouldn't get arrested, but we'll see. God. I hope you don't too. Yeah. Um, Let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, in uh, looking at these uh, diaspora activists, um, what have you noticed about the ways in which they continue to be like either involved and connected to their communities in Egypt, or in what ways they've um, maybe like they're separate or detached from it, um, and in, in what ways do you feel that the state is still able to have? power over them and in what ways does being outside the country um like enhance their activism by giving them that distance and freedom to be honest i haven't started my field work yet and this is why i said i'm in the very early process so i i, I don't think i am able to answer this question because if i answer it it will be like uh, as if i'm making conclusions mm -hmm. based on something that i didn't even investigate yet but what i can say is that i'm interested like I know for sure that people are still working and trying to get involved, but I think what is very interesting for me about this project is to see the everydayness of this. How? Like, how do people navigate their own sense of identities? What does Egyptian mean when you are a diasporic subject? What kind of projects are you interested in? How do you navigate those connections with Egypt? Because most of the people, including Adam, is like, you know, they try to do things here in the US and tr they try to do things there in the in Egypt and it's like so it's like you want to move the field of diaspora of diaspora studies beyond that you are not looking at the community at these communities as if they are discrete communities mm -hmm. you are basically bringing the the country of origin quote-unquote in the conversation because I feel like that this is what is somehow missing from literature on diaspora is that we forget why people had to leave in the first place mm -hmm. and i'm interested in why people are leaving why yeah. egypt is becoming so hard to live in um, sorry. because i'm also hopeful that maybe 
this would have changed something in the processes of seeking asylum for other people. Maybe this will help in making things better. I don't know. I just want to tell the story. Yeah. I also want to acknowledge that, like, even before things got so bad in 2013, like, so much of the ethos of your work is was about this idea of trying to look at um, whose narrative was not being told as a part of the grant narrative and then, like, trying to include them. Um, you didn't even, like, you talked about so many different cool parts of your life and you didn't talk about my favorite part, which is the book. Um, so, TT wrote a book. I don't know if it was published in 2012 or 2013 it was published uh, in but it was a but it's a collection of short stories uh that are all about uh queer people existing in the revolution uh and it's funny because um obviously there were a lot of lgbtq people um in egypt during the revolution but that was never really documented um or never like spoken of on a grand scale like lgbt rights were not quite part of like the political platform of anybody um and Titi's book, like, I think was 12 stories of, like, like very, like, short stories that were, like, through them, and they were written in very different styles and different, very different demogra demographics, but you could see how different um, queer people or people who are in any way gender subversive, like, came to be part of the revolution and what the revolution meant for them. And it's, it's so beautiful. It's, I, like, I want to translate it one day. Is that the book? I've been saying this for years. Is that the book that's called Side Streets to the Square? Yes. Okay. I, okay. And where can we find this book? Yeah, Just where before can we get find into it. it. Yeah. <laughs> One day I will translate it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> How about or I could for, just get yes. better at reading it. How about for Arabic? <laughs> yeah, how about for Arabic speakers? Where can they find it? I don't think it's being published anymore, but I okay. I willingly send the PDF to everyone. I don't, I'm not interested in profits. Like, I send the PDF to everyone who wants to. It's amazing. Yeah. Cool. So, listeners, yeah, reach out to Tarek if you want. Okay, now um, that we have that, that hookup, yeah. um, can you just tell us um, more about those short stories and um, what was your approach in making that compilation? So, for, for this book, I don't know. It's like I felt at a moment that, you know what? No one is going to tell your story unless you tell it yourself. And and it was obvious that everyone was starting to write their own stories. And I felt that I'm really interested in telling the stories that I witnessed myself of my own communities. And it's like, we're going to write those stories ourselves. So this is where the idea came from. Some of the stories actually were written before the revolution. So it was interesting to see how they were adapted. I was interested in building some sort of, how can I say it? It just happened that there are multiple ways to read the book. Like you can read it er like from an urban perspective. So it's like it really moves from a side street to a bigger side street to the square and then beyond. So it's like it starts this. So it's like mm -hmm. it's a tour in downtown Egypt, in downtown Cairo somehow. And you can also read it psychologically because it, it, it presents different moments in, you know, like um, different psychological moments for queer people who always felt that they would be marginalized, but then the revolution made them feel that they can be part of the mainstream. I don't know. It's like, since I was a kid and also having communist father, I was never interested in the stories of how people are heroic and, and how he how much of heroes they are. I'm, I'm very much interested in the everyday resistance and resilience, those kind of stories that are very human. So I felt that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to write them and, and see. I was grateful that Dr. Nawara Sadawi agreed to write the introduction for the book and she loved it, uh, so she did. I don't think that it made good sales and I'm not interested in this, but I feel like it was well received within the queer community in Egypt and for me this is enough. It's something that I wanted to leave for history. Yeah, that seems way more important than sales. Like, you know who you're writing to, or to and it means something to them. Exactly. If other people don't want to read it, like, it's not it's not about them and it's not for them and yeah i don't know that that that's kind of my take on publicity at the moment and actually to be honest i was grateful glad that my dad supported me financially in publishing um if you want i'm interested to hear more about your dad um and his communist activism and what that was like growing up so with my dad i feel like this is also the origin of my love-hate relationship with the the left. I don't think that I love my dad just because he's my dad. I love the the new version of my dad. I love the dad that decided to willingly work on himself. I think starting from 2007, I remember we had a personal conversation when I told him that I'm not forgiving him for lots of the violence when I was a kid. 
and he actually did sorry and he said that he was willing to work on it so starting from 2007 we've been working on our relationship my dad i came out to him 2014 my dad knows about the book he read it he loved it he knows about what i'm doing for my phd he knows about my queer activism uh he knows who i am he supports me he's proud of me but my dad of the past when i was younger no it was a nightmare like i remember very violent memories i remember very homophobic comments and traumatizing stories and also violence against my mom so i would always say that i only decided to forgive him when my mom forgave him and when he decided to be a better human being but if you ask me generally i don't think that i'm a bit like i'm i'm a bit extreme when it comes to this but mm-hmm. with men who are violent i don't really believe in like you know this much forgiveness no i'm not interested oh, yeah i think that's I fair that. i think we all yeah. have to make different decisions about how to forgive especially people who are close to us who yeah. um and what does re- trauma yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and like what reconciliation can look like and exactly. how deep it and this, can go but sorry to interrupt oh, I, I just sorry. wanted to say i think what i'm trying to say is that if i love my dad now i don't love him because i romanticize biological family mm-hmm. kinship uh, kinships and, and relationships because i feel like family can be the most dangerous thing biological families can mm-hmm. be the most dangerous thing in life like and this is what feminists have been saying for decades i feel like I love and respect my dad now because he's been constantly working on making it up for each one of us and becoming a better human being and I always say I wouldn't have forgiven him if my mom hadn't said explicitly that she forgave him and she loves him. So gotcha. but yeah with abusive fathers and abusive family members I would always advise people to if if they can save themselves and leave the shit. I mean you're so, I guess you're kind of saying it's a chosen relationship at this point like he has chosen exactly. to become someone that you can have a relationship and you've chosen to have him in your life and even though like he also happens to be your biological father like that's not the the basis of that relationship yeah, yeah. and also thing that I feel like it's important to know and this is how can I say it? this is also part of being Egyptian queer and relying on lots of Egyptian pop culture mm-hmm. is that you become somehow smart in terms of how to deal with families so having yeah. this relationship with my dad I feel at some moments I want to test it so for example after the Mashrua Laila crackdown and when we lost my young uh, our young friend for suicide I made my dad write a message to him and i shared it with queer facebook groups for younger kids to feel that yeah. that family is going to change that you know that he's a, a an egyptian father and he's supporting and he's so it's like when i had a boyfriend after the crowd down i felt like what is the point of you knowing if you don't know about my boyfriend so i wanted to introduce him to my boyfriend and at first he was skeptical but then he was like i will do whatever you want me to do and whatever we need to have but then my back my boyfriend stepped back that's another issue but <laughs> i mean like i try yeah. to test i try to test from time to time like because sometimes i feel you're not doing me a favor by accepting me and if you really want to be a supportive dad then use your privilege whenever you can as a supportive dad um and especially making like public statements like that cuz like i don't know i i i experienced that like a lot of people are like I support you in private, but I would never let other people know that because it's all about, you know, keeping up yeah appearances. Um that's how my family is. They're all like it's always individuals who are like, "Yeah, I'm cool with you, but don't tell anyone else." Don't tell anyone like, and I'm not going to be caught like publicly supporting, supporting you. you um, yeah. But but like also like even just seeing I'm sure it means a lot to so many people just to have the representation of like mm-hmm. a father publicly supporting his gay kid like that's something that you don't see that much and yeah it's it's like really meaningful to have that out there yeah and and, and yeah and, and I feel lucky but um because I feel like I've been very serious I feel like there's a funny anecdote that I get. I feel like my generation is grateful for Nabila Abed the Egyptian actress and for one movie in a specific called the Raqsa Siasi the belly dancer and the politician this movie is so fucking empowering and for my generation of queer people she was an idol in this movie 
because the way she was transparent and confident and empowered again it's a society that thinks that she's a sinner and she's like you know so i feel like i don't know but this again this is me and pop culture but i feel like if it wasn't for nabila abed if it wasn't for the billy dancer and the politician maybe i wouldn't have been able to do this with my dad because it's like using the cards that she told me in the movie it's like you know mm-hmm. what okay i'm gonna play your game but you're gonna play with my rules as well so it's like let's see how this yeah. would work i mean a lot of times we rely on like art and pop culture for political we need scripts discourse like, and like yeah. change and yeah yeah, yeah I just want you guys. it's very tight you... yeah oh. and if it told queer people in egypt something at least my generation it told us that be the fuck you want to be and no one is doing you a favor by accepting you they should be grateful that yeah. you told them so yeah thank you nabila Bey. i just want you yeah, guys to know you. that there is no conversation with titi that does not involve nabila <laughs> like you will always bring her up at some point <laughs> Nabila Abid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. It sounds like I, she deserves frequent mentions. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess. Um, is there anything else that uh, you want people to know about you or that you're, that you're working on? Yeah. You want to give a shout um, out? I th- yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think if something like hits my mind right now is that. Yes, I can be like, you know, busy with work and everything, but I always love to be as accessible and as available as I can be for my community everywhere. So if anyone wants to reach out, please do. I am accessible. You can share my contacts with the people as long as you trust them. Okay. I mean, like, I feel like we are all being, in my utopian queer community fantasy, I love to be, to feel like I can be useful for people. So, and I love to be accessible, so. Are you yeah. on, are you on social media that you want to like shout out on the podcast? Um, I think I'm like, for now I deactivated Facebook because it's so much anxiety, but I'm on Instagram. Cool. Uh, what is my Instagram? Yeah, I think it's, um, Adam, okay. we can post. I'm gonna look it up we right can... now. <laughs> yeah, you... Wait, I can Google we this. We can stalk you right this minute. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can post my handle. So for now, awesome. Okay. And Adam also has my email address and my phone number. So okay. Yeah. Yes. All right. So listeners, reach out to us if you want. Reach out to Adam and he can tell you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Reach out to Adam, Adam if you want like email. Or if you want the Instagram handle, it's gonna be in the bio. Yeah, yeah. we're about to find out. We're... It's literally just your first, middle, and last name with dots in between them. <laughs> <laughs> like... Okay. We'll find it and post it. Thank you so much for doing this. For listeners, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. And we are on... We are, we have a website, thequeerarabs.com, and you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Thank you again. This was so this nice was connecting to you, and you are fucking brilliant. Thank you so much. Seriously. It's such an honor. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. It means the world to me.